Well, after 499 episodes of Monocle on Culture, I don't know whether you can tell where we are. The birds are singing. We're in a leafy area of North London. It's the most famous recording studio in the world. This is where we're recording our 500th edition at NW8 Abbey Road. My name is Merrick Stars. I am the head of audio products here at Abbey Road Studios. So I, I work with companies and we create software recreations and hardware recreations of some of our old classic gear. Before that, my previous incarnation here at Abbey Road Studios was as a recording engineer. I'd love to know before we start the tour, what, you, what how you felt when you first turned up to work here actually on your first day. You've been here for a while. You still get a thrill walking across the pedestrian crossing and walking up these steps. But what was day one like for you? very exciting a bit of a blur I couldn't actually believe I was here I remember I was sort of touching the walls to see what sort of material was on the wall I was fascinated by all this the acoustics and the gear and the desks and it was kind of mind-blowing first of all the history of, of even the house is just it is crazy I mean here we are it looks like a house because it, it was a house it was a townhouse built in the 1830s in this sort of, you know, beautiful St. John's Wood neighbourhood. Not a bad little corner of London. Not a bad little corner. And the reason it became a recording studio was the gramophone company, who were the first record company in this, in this country, or in the world, in fact. So they started in the uh, 1890s, obviously completely new industry. It was not trusted by some musicians and artists. They didn't like the idea of being recorded, fear of the unknown, of technology. But by the mid-20s, especially when the um, Electricity Electricity Recording Act was passed in 1925, recording just massively took off. I say that because before 1925, most recordings were just mechanical. Musicians would crowd around a big acoustic horn and if you wanted an element of the music to be louder, that musician would just move closer to the horn. You know, it was very mechanical. When electricity came onto the scene, m- microphones could be used, moving, moving coil microphones and very small basic mixing consoles and, and electric-driven cutting lathes. So it kind of changed the whole recording industry. It was a big deal. So the vision of the gramophone company was let's build a purpose-built facility. So they bought the house in 1929, um, by 1931, November the 12th, uh, was the opening ceremony. It's amazing, and there's a green plaque on it from Westminster City Council saying Sir Edward Elgar opened and recorded in these studios on the 12th of November 1931. It's amazing to think only 30-odd years after that the Beatles were here, or maybe, maybe 32 years afterwards. Yeah. But that's quite amazing, from Elgar to the Beatles in 30 years, and now we're, we're going to bring ourselves bang up to date by the end of this programme. But let's walk inside Merrick and have an exploration of Abbey Road. Oh, wow. And through a little, small, unglamorous doorway, where do we find ourselves, Merrick? We're in Studio One, the cavernous-sounding Studio One, as you can probably hear in my voice. So this is, this is where it all began. This is the centrepiece of Abbey Road Studios. Because this has got kind of, um, if you don't mind me saying so, the storied Studio One here at Abbey Road. It's got a kind of school gymnasium vibe. 
about it somewhat, but that's the colour scheme as much as anything. What are these blue, this, this sort of top panel above sort of maybe 10 foot high? It looks like blue plasticky stuff, but I bet it's not. It's actually just blue panels found in a hardware store in the mid-70s by uh, um, Ken Townsend, the manager. You know what I mean? I know what you mean, yeah. So the, the, the studio hasn't changed since the mid-70s, and now it's considered one of the finest sounding rooms in the world. We wouldn't touch it for love nor money. We've got to be very careful with it, actually. But like I say, they're always trying different things to try and liven up the sound. Uh, they even tried a system where they had a series of speakers around the walls, and they would feed some of the recording back into the room uh, at very low volume so you don't get feedback to sort of try and liven the room up a bit which didn't work very well apparently it sounded awful so they were trying all sorts of things but anyway at the end of the day uh, they found this this blue panelling in a hardware store I think yeah by Ken Townsend and they thought let's just try this and and it worked I mean it's a it's a beautiful sounding room they, they got the reverberation time up to sort of 2.3 seconds I think now and it's um it's a you know it's a lively room I mean when you've got an orchestra in here and a choir in here, I mean, the room sings. It's like, it sounds beautiful. Obviously, a lot of classical music recorded in here. You know, Sir Edward Elgar, we've mentioned, um, Pablo Castles, um, Yehudi Menuhin did like over 200 recordings in here. Some of the big band stuff, like Glenn Miller did some stuff in here. Fats Waller on his on his on his organ. There used to be a big organ in here, big Compton organ. Classical music dried up in the mid seventies, I would say, from a point of view that most of the repertoire had been recorded for for vinyl, if you like, or cassette, and there wasn't a huge amount of new repertoire coming through. That changed in the very early eighties when CD came along. It's like, okay, we've got this digital thing going on now. Let's just re-record everything, nice and clean release it on CD, but in the mid-70s, that hadn't happened. So there's this lull, and it was a massive problem, particularly by the late 70s, because the, you know, the suits at EMI were like, why is this room empty? It's a huge room in a very expensive part of London, not doing anything. So they thought of quite drastic measures. One of them was to divide this room up into two smaller pop studios with underground car parking. Wow. Yeah, that's like being the, the executive that didn't sign the Beatles, right? Doing that to Abbey yes, Road. Yeah. yeah, that could be, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, you could see what they were thinking. You know, in the, in, in, around about the time, pop studios all over London. It was like a big business. People couldn't record at home like you can now. If you wanted to record something, you had to go to a studio. That was that's the way it was. So it, it kind of made sense. But luckily, Ken Townsend, he was thinking like, you know, this is a historic room. There has to be another way. And and I guess fate kicked in there a little bit because there was a film scoring stage called Anvil Films over in in Denham, and that's where they recorded like Superman, the first Star Wars, Alien that sort of thing. It was like a a renowned film scoring stage. The lease was up on their building. It was being knocked down and redeveloped and turned into a shopping center or something horrendous, you know. And so they were looking around for a new home for Anvil Films. And it just so happened that this room wasn't being used much. It was a fantastic alternative to turning it into two pop studios. So they struck a deal. So in the uh, 1980, uh, Anvil Abbey Road Screen Sound was created. And that was Abbey Road's first dip into the world of film music. So one of the very first scores to be done here was Raiders of the Lost Ark in 1981. 
uh, Return of the Jedi was done here in 1983, and, and it just kind of snowballed from there, really. Robocop, um, Highlander. You're just talking about your favourite films now, aren't you? Literally, Aliens, you know, they're all done here. It's, it's crazy to think that these classic films and these classic scores by these amazing composers and, and amazing directors, it was all done in this room. So, and, and to this day, film music is, you know, the centre of this room is, you know, film music and Avengers Endgame and gravity and shape of water and black panther you know they just keep coming you know lord of the rings you know it's just harry potter's you know you name it it's it's been done here so here we are we're in the Studio 2, Abbey Road. I can't think of a single good story attached to this place, but maybe you can. <laughs> Nothing happened here. Nothing happened. Nothing, happened. Nothing to see here. So this is, again, again like walking in your, fir- your first day at Abbey Road, everyone knows the, 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 the albums that were cut here in the early, throughout the 60s especially, I suppose. 70s, Dark Side of the Moon, as well as all the Beatles stuff. And again, what did you feel like when you first walked in here? It, it's so many brilliant photographs were taken of the Beatles recording and writing in this room and, and all the rest of it. Do you get a tingle up your spine when you, when you walked in here at the beginning? Yeah, it's the most famous recording studio in the world. And to this day, it still feels very special whenever you walk in here. Just the way it looks and the way it sounds... Uh, the way it smells, even there's, no, there's nothing else quite like Studio Two. It really does, isn't it? It's got a, it's got a period vibe to it in a very in a very happy way. The smell of history. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Studio Two is it's been here since 1931 as well. Unlike Studio One or Studio Three, which we'll see in a bit, this studio hasn't changed a huge amount. They kind of nailed it first time. I think they, if anything, they worked out it was too lively, so they hung these drapes down. You can see sort of in the mid in the mid 50s but what you see is what you get with studio two it's a very warm sounding room it's a lovely sounding room it's not too bright it's not too dark it's not too reverberant it's not too dull it's just the perfect little room really and whatever you throw at it it seems to work so we're set up for a um for a small orchestra here today Drums, guitars, bands. You know, it's a great band tracking room. Maybe not, you know, obviously the Beatles and Cliff Richard and the Shadows and the pop music. The pop revolution happened in in this room pretty much from a UK's point of view in the mid fifties when then these guitar bands came along, which I think some of the classical or more traditional label heads thought it was a bit of a fad. You know, like this guitar music won't last. Um, but you know, it happened here. Into the 90s, you had, you know, Oasis use this room and Paul McCartney still comes here and, you know, kind of Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds and, and Muse and Adele and Kanye West has used this room, uh, you know, Green Day. I mean, yeah, it just, you know, people just keep want to, you know, people want to use Studio 2. It's just a, it gives us a certain vibe, yeah. gives us a certain sound, a certain vibe. It's, um, you know, people riff off of this room, you know, it's a pretty special room. We're very protective of the rooms. Yeah. There's an echo chamber out the back. Um, before the uh, invention of artificial reverb, say like a digital reverb device, um, or even like plate reverbs in the mid fifties, where you, where you had like this huge sheet of metal and a microphone transducer, and you play the music through the sheet of metal effectively, and it would kind of give a that kind of um, well, it'd sound like reverb space. It would add space to a recording. The only way to do that before the mid fifties, when plates came along, was to actually 
have a speaker and a, and a microphone in a reverberant room, a chamber, an echo chamber. And we're lucky we've still got an echo chamber, which, you know, not many people have echo chambers anymore. Um, well, we, we mentioned it. Should we go and have a... Yeah, let's go and have a look at it. It's behind a thick kind of door, the kind of thing you'd find on a submarine. Essentially, it's a, it's a room with um, white, white tiles. It's a sort of got a bathroom feeling to it. White tiles one at both ends, white painted walls, quite a low ceiling, and pillars for what? Pillars to disperse the sound, bounce the sound around the room. So you mentioned bathroom. I mean, it's the typical thing, isn't it? People sing in the bathroom, right? Because their sound, the voice, you know, their, their voice sounds pretty good in a bathroom because you're surrounded by tiles in most bathrooms and the sound bounces around. It sounds quite reverberant. So it's quite flattering on your voice. This is that. It's become amazing in there. This is, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All, you need, all you need is some tiles to sound amazing. That's, that's the secret to the entire music industry. Um, no, so yeah, it's, that's what it is. It's a tiled room. It's a bathroom effect. It's that sort of sound. Yeah, we're really lucky we've still got this room. Um, it's great to have it here as, as something people can use. It's, it's a unique sound. Also a great place to um, lock the drummer when he can't behave himself. You don't have to be quoted to respond to that in any way whatsoever. Unless you feel like it. I have seen drums done in that room. <laughs> okay. In the fire escape, I've seen drums done. Right. Yeah, Paul, Paul McCartney set up a drum kit in there and started playing yeah. just to get a different sound. And it was fine until the neighbours complained about half an hour later because the sound was just flying straight out of the fire escape into the next door neighbour's garden. So. That's hilarious. And we're in a Studio 3. We're in a more sort of contemporary feeling space in here somehow. It's got a kind of um, new age church vibe to it, Mirek. Outside of the world of the bands, we know who use this, this studio. And we've walked, after, we've walked past so many wonderful photographs on the walls of great contemporary artists and going right back, as you say, to... To Cliff Richard and Elgar and all the rest of it. Um, what about we're in Studio Three at the moment? Who's who's been using this recently in the last months and, and years? Frank Ocean spent months in here. Bronkhampton, that was a really really interesting example. That they came in here and gave themselves like a two week window to record and mix and master an album. I mean, no one does that anymore. That's going back to like what people used to do in the sixties, right? So yeah, it was amazing to see like a young band like Brockhampton come into and use this room. They use every part of this room, like the lounge, the booths, the control room, and just recorded this album from start to finish, all in this room. So yeah, it's it's great to see bands and artists, you know, still still coming to Abbey Road and, and using these rooms. It must be great when you're working when, when you've got a band in for that amount of time who really want to use use it in a kind of that old-fashioned way in, in a way bringing that old-fashioned way up to date i suppose that must be quite thrilling for everyone in the for everyone in and around the studios when you've got people in there making stuff that's brilliant and you can hear it you can hear bits of it snippets of it how does that affect the kind of atmosphere in the studios as a building because it must that some of that excitement seeps through doesn't it it definitely resonates yeah, yeah absolutely i mean I, I remember when i used to work in the studios a lot more than i do now it's a privilege, really, to witness this, you know, these events happening, to witness these recordings, these art, this art being created, these great, you know, great pieces of music being created. Um, not many people get that privilege, right? You can feel the buzz in, in the building when there's certain events going on, definitely. Yeah, yeah, it's, um, yes, it's exciting. The intimate confines of 
the gatehouse is where we finish the tour. Again, a much kind of newer, smaller, snugger contemporary space. Is that where we're at now? Yeah, this used to be the original stables to the house back in the day. And then it became, it was originally editing rooms, classical editing rooms in the 60s and the 70s, up until kind of fairly recently. And then we decided that we needed some smaller recording spaces. I mean, having Studio One, Two and Three is all well and good, but not everyone needs a studio that size, right? So we converted the old editing rooms into into the space we're in now. We call it the gatehouse. So, so yeah, it's a smaller, more intimate recording venue, really, which is perfectly adequate for many recordings. Yeah. I mean... Miramasa, Noel Rogers, Jess Glynn. So, you know, we're in a great sounding room, great acoustics. You can get easily get a drum kit in here and piano and, you know, a couple of guitars and perfect for overdubs, like vocal overdubs, that sort of thing. And a really nice little control room with nice Neve desk and synthesizers and nice outboards. So you kind of, you know, you got what it's you... got a nice feel about it as well, this. I love this studio. I think it's a great studio. I, I really like it. And and you've still got access to, you know, the, all the old microphones and the old gear as well. So it's just a, it's a little extension of Abbey Road that we've created over the last sort of four or five years. You know, at the end of the day, it's 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 a more attractive price point as well for younger bands as well. You know, you know, you don't always have the, the budgets to rec- spend two weeks in Studio 2, you know. Um, so, you know, it just gives people more options. We started off uh, outside the front steps here at Abbey Road, Mirac, with you talking about your kind of first day at work as a runner and all all, all of that stuff. W- what about now? What are you working on specifically in May 2021? At the moment, aside from the plugins, I help create hardware recreations of some of the old classic bits of gear with a company called Chandler Limited. I've just started working with a company called Spitfire Audio who do um, orchestral samples. And more recently, well, over the last couple of years, I've been exploring sound for virtual reality and augmented reality using game engines uh, like Unity and Unreal. So a game engine is like a very, it's like a blank 3D canvas, if you like, and you can populate it with 3D graphical objects and attach sound to those objects. Uh, It's how they make games. They make you know, they use game engines to make games traditionally, but now they're starting to be referred to as real-time engines because these engines are being used for architectural design, they're being used to create movies, music videos, and, and music is, is no exception. So I've been exploring how we can do recordings in a way where you can walk through the recordings. So it's called it's called Six Degrees of Freedom. So if you imagine you're in a VR headset and you've got, a virtual studio two, if you like, and you've got a, a, a graphic of a drum kit, a graphic of a guitar amp. I can attach these the recordings, the sounds of the drum kits, to those graphical representations. And as the band is playing, you can walk through the room. So if you want to hear more of the drums, you go and stand wow. closer to the drums. If you want to get right up to the vocalist and have the vocalist in your face and really hear the intimacy from the lyrics, you can do that. Or you can go and stand in the corner of the room and get more of an overall sound. So you can kind of explore the music and still poke your head in places and just get this. That's amazing. What an amazing tool that is. It's an interesting way of exploring music. And I think, you know, we're going to see more and more musicians and artists and producers and engineers using these real-time engines like Unity and Unreal to, to create music experiences. Your tour feels exactly like that. It feels like we've kind of 
we've knelt down and heard the snare drum and we've gone to the control rooms and we've kind of channeled the history and the kind of contemporary nature of Abbey Road in all its forms as well. Mirek, thank you so much uh, for your tour this morning. So my name is Paul Pritchard and I'm one of the recording engineers here and I've worked here since 2007 when I started as a runner. So you studied sound design, sound engineering? Yeah, music, and, music and sound recording. Yeah, okay. Um, and then you come here and it all just kind of gets put into practice or at least you see other people put into practice for a while. And yeah. Grow and learn and get more confident and then start getting your own sessions. So, yeah, I mean, I guess the thing about music and recording there's always something to learn there's always development yeah. it's never like you've, you've nailed it or or whatever because so, you learn something new off every musician oh, you work yeah, with every, every every record you help to cut yeah absolutely yeah. And, and what's great about here when you know when you're starting you're an, you're an assistant for a very long time but it means you get to see the ways that all the other engineers work and there's engineers that come in from all around the world and all different styles of music you can decide yourself as an assistant which bits you liked, which bits you didn't like, which bits you'd use yourself. Yeah. And yeah, and after a while, you just get, you become quite good at it. And I think I'm quite good now. Good. <laughs> a few. As well as all the technical stuff, you are sat in a room with someone for, you know, 12, 14 hours sometimes, and they've got a, um, you know, a, a passion and a project that they're working for. And to, to make sure that the personalities, work together is is one of the most important things that you definitely don't learn at university yeah because there's an element of pastoral care about this as much as musicality as much as oh, getting absolutely. on with someone there's an idea you've got to be patient you've got to be yeah. you've also got to help people realize their dreams i suppose it sounds a bit yeah. ridiculous but it is that's what you're yeah and and sometimes it's, it's sort of like captain of a ship sometimes a little bit in that sometimes yeah. you need to make sure that you're getting done what needs to get done as well and um who have you loved working with and and, and, and engineering music for since you've been here, um Paul? well the ones that i like the most are the ones that i sort of listened to when i was younger yeah um that's I, a dream isn't it oh I mean, yeah i remember being in i remember being in a car with my friend when we were probably about 17 just like just past the test and a song by a band called Biffy Clyro came on yeah. I thought it was the most amazing thing ever um, and then I was lucky enough that um, I helped finish off their last record and then they came back and we did um, a sort of live orchestral thing for them that was filmed as well and it's it's great those moments where you're just like yeah you know the 15 year old you would have absolutely loved this <laughs> yeah and how does it work with, with younger bands younger musicians and things like that they might or they might not need a bit of guidance from yeah. their engineer. Yeah, um, oh, definitely. But then there's, you know, musicians who've been doing it for 50 years who come in and have used these studios before. How does that... There's a, there's a kind of... I always wonder yeah. about the dynamic between a composer and an orchestra well, as think, well. There's a sort of I dynamic think, going on. I think, um, for me, and I, I, I think other engineers would agree with this, I think we could kind of, like, fill the void that is left by whoever's not there or whoever isn't doing something in a session. So sometimes there might be a producer in a band and they've got all the sort of musicality and all that sort of thing knocked down and I'm just doing my thing and I don't even need to sort of 
enter into that sort of producer role at all but sometimes there's not and then you can take over and it's the same with a composer and an orchestra sometimes you sometimes the composer absolutely has the language to speak to the orchestra but sometimes not and you you sit back when you're not needed and sort of let it all happen and if you can see that something needs to help then you can and you can step in and yeah. I, think, I think that's important as an engineer to sort of know when to help when not to help when to let it happen and when to push it along. We hear always those apocryphal tales of, you know, and then three months into the recording process, the lead singer came in one day with cowbells. <laughs> we talked about your political role, your pastoral <laughs> care, your subtlety, Paul. How do you stop people coming in uh, with the cowbells and how do you, how do you, how do you ward against that? Um, anything, people pretty focused, actually, generally. What you can do is... What would be great is if we did that as an overdub. <laughs> you, you say that, and you then, go, tell you what, guys. Yeah, and then there's, you know, anything that is sort of like maybe controversial, <laughs> you might as well record it because it doesn't necessarily mean that it, yeah. you know, whilst all the mics are up and whilst this person's got the energy for their cowbells, um, <laughs> depending on the time of day, um, but yeah, you let, let people flow with an idea yeah. and then often you play it back to them and then they'll come to the decision that you have come to okay and there's they'll come to the decision you've got. I like exactly that. oh yeah oh there's there's loads of that <laughs> yeah it's like you yeah, happy yeah. with that and then as soon as you've asked that question some you know it puts them in a sort of yeah different different space rather than saying i'm not happy with that because ultimately it's their music yeah yeah and it can be however they want it to be and you're only there to facilitate what that is and there might be disagreements and you know if i say are you happy with that and they are then great it's yeah. their music but often they're like no nah, maybe, maybe not people are sort of different every day of their lives yeah, sometimes of course. They, they might they might be a certain way in a recording studio because essentially they're at they're at work i mean yeah. there's plenty of people i know that are very different at work than they are how at exciting home. are most novelists you know on from monday to friday <laughs> not very right i mean you know, or painters yeah but yeah there's, there's that but no it's 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 great and yeah there's there's um there's people that you meet that you thought you might not sort of have a connection with um and then you absolutely do and that's and that's that's really wonderful I'm Isabel Garvey. I'm the managing director of Abbey Road Studios. Um, Isabel, thank you so much um, for your time this afternoon. All the people we've met and talked to in various corridors through Abbey Road today have sort of talked about the buzz they get from being in the building yeah. and obviously the history and all the sense of it. And, and that, that reputation of this series of buildings and series of studios is sort of part of the sort of fabric of music history. Mm. But you're obviously thinking of the future. You, that's good for you and it's good for the yeah. vibes and the reputation and the rest of it. So how do you... How do you sort of begin to safeguard the future and bring new artists in, for example, who are less vibing off the Beatles and Pink Floyd and yeah. Kate Bush and stuff? I think, it, I mean, it's interesting. I often talk about, you know, this job as kind of like a tightrope mm. because the, the, the history and the kind of if these walls could talk kind of feeling of Abbey Road is just incredible. And, you know, you, you don't get tired of walking that crossing and coming in those doors every day. And it's important that that kind of goosebump kind of feeling stays with us all. So I often talk about this tightrope of how do we respect and kind of acknowledge that history that comes with the place, but then kind of, you know, make it appealing for the next generation and kind of really look, start looking to the future. And 
actually, when you think about this place, you know, Abbey Road itself was an innovation, was one of the first purpose-built studios. And we had, you know, technical engineers, not just the Paul Pritchards of this world running through the corridors coming up with amazing new equipment, you know, surround, uh, stereo sound was invented here. Um, so that kind of actual future gazing and challenging technology and challenging how music is made from a creative and technical perspective has always been in this building. Um, so I think I, I wanted to, when I came in, which is nearly five and a half years ago yeah. now, wanted to kind of harness that and and then kind of have it meet the the world that's out there today and how do we kind of build for that. So, you know, we focused a lot on, we've invested in the, the building itself and built some new studios because without music in these rooms, you know, that is the beating heart of Abbey Road. And we've worked really hard on making sure that Abbey Road feels much more accessible. You know, there was a time when, you know, people thought, you know, you had to be the best of the best of the best to come through those beautiful oak doors. And we've put a lot of work into trying to break that down, make it more accessible, because once you come in through the doors, as you will have seen yourself today, it's, you know, it's like a family, yeah. you know, it's all quite relaxed. It's, you know, we really want to focus on inspiration and, you know, um, making really great music. I mean, amazingly, everyone that comes through the doors finds someone that has come in before them that has inspired them to come in here. So I don't think, you know, you alluded to that Beatles factor, Pink Floyd factor. Yeah. Actually, some, you know, young artists are still hugely, um, hugely kind of um, inspired by that. And then others find, you know, I don't know, Brockhampton's been in here, so then they simply have to have to visit. So I think people find their reasons to to come here and the tech thing and sort of future proofing yeah. the technology and the, the reputation mm -hmm. looking for, to the future in all sorts of different ways is an interesting thing i mean i know that you've got we'll come and talk about the your sort of tech incubator and things like that but where do, i mean coming from labels mm -hmm. uh, as you as you have yeah. done yourself where do studios sit where does abbey road sit in the sort of the the musical kind of ecosystem as part of that I think Abbey Road sits very proudly in the ecosystem. I mean, fundamentally, we're, you know, obviously you're, we're preaching to our own choir, but, you know, we believe that having inspirational spaces, amazing engineers, all of the equipment and kit that we have here is still something that artists want and need. I mean, the, the, the reality is people can do so much more on technology before they get here and afterwards. But actually, even in the pandemic, it's kind of proven out that moment of people coming together and just kind of riffing off each other and, and um, creating really beautiful music. People still want to do that in a space. So I think when I first came here, it was how do we keep that, you know, core beating heart you know, going because we think this is something that people will will want in the in the future. But then around that is how do we actually expand what Abbey Road is beyond the physical building here? How can we be useful to music producers before they come into the, the space or artists even? What can we do afterwards? What are the kind of obvious extensions of this business that can kind of be meaningful to that broader ecosystem? You know, our education business being a really good example, it may feel slightly tangential to some, but actually when you think about it, we're training up the next generation of people who can run studios, you know, be part of the music production process. Well, I mentioned this, the tech incubator. How is that directly relatable to to making music, recording music, publishing music? Yeah. So that actually kind of, it came about very organically. You know, as I've mentioned before, 
that kind of concept of constant innovation and breaking rules and kind of trying to break things almost, mm. you know, was how people operated day to day here. And, you know, in previously when we were owned by EMI and, you know, I'm going decades back now where it was that vertically integrated structure where you had the engineers and they made the machines and the machines sat at Abbey Road and you owned the label and then you owned HMV and it was, yeah. you know, all beautifully vertically. Seamless. Yeah. <laughs> and then the world changed. And so how... I think when I came in, I thought, how can I take that energy and kind of make it fit for purpose? How can we interact with innovation in its modern context, which is slightly more open source and kind of uh, startup driven or, or co- corporates didn't have to invent everything themselves. So harnessing that energy and thinking, how could we engage with innovation? And actually, we spent a year looking at the market um, seeing where music tech was in particular and how we might fit in with it. And I think we just we ha- we hit upon quite a sweet spot where artificial intelligence or machine learning in particular was just becoming a little more mainstream, which actually brought with it a kind of a huge kind of step change for music tech startups and music tech business ideas. It wasn't, I think we had gone through a Me Too period of everyone developing a streaming service and suddenly we were seeing really, really interesting businesses. And we thought, actually, there is no one sponsoring music tech out there at the moment. Why don't we offer a platform? You know, we have artists that can play with with these um, with these technologies. We have engineers who can add to the technologies. And we have a major record label as a parent company who can, you know, potentially use these technologies as well. So it just it felt quite natural and quite of the moment. And actually, when you when I look back on the first couple of businesses we brought in, a lot of it was in that very uncomfortable area of the computer potentially composing and what did that mean? And actually, the proximity to that led to, you know, amazing understanding in this building. But also you realise that technology, certainly that type of technology, just seems to be a human creative enhancer, right? So, yes, the computer could do or the algorithm could produce, I don't know, production ideas possibly faster. But actually all it was doing was elevating the human element and it made it easier to share ideas or whatever it was. One thing that Holly, the producer of this programme, and I talked about recently, and, and it's come up because it's part of your sort of one of your flag, flagships, I suppose, is, is your Equalised yeah. programme and having women producers, especially mm-hmm. and engineers, on the other side of the glass. Because we, we were talking about what that makes, what difference that makes to female recording artists. Mm-hmm. You know, What were the kind of touchstones for Equalise, I wonder, and, and how do you attract? women engineers and how do you because that's an educational thing and a talent yeah it's multi you're absolutely right it's multifaceted I mean uh, equalizes our banner for our guess our diversity programs the kind of the underrepresented groups in music and I take that in its kind of broader sense but I think look you know as a female leader you know looking at our business it is still in the production and engineering side you know incredibly skewed male for a number of reasons and yet there are amazing female engineers and producers out there so actually I think it was two or three years ago we brought as many as we could think of into the studios to kind of have a round table saying you know why are we in this situation where less than six percent you know of of producers and engineers are women and to your point a lot of it goes back to 
are girls made aware of this as a career path? You know, when they're at school, how do we get access to give them access to the education? Uh, how do we actually halo the people that are amazing at their jobs and, and are female or, you know, any part of un, any underrepresented group? And what can we as Abbey Road do with that? And so on the back of all of that re- research, we kind of created Equalize to kind of inspire people to show that it is possible to help people understand the jobs you need to kind of tick a lot of those boxes but i think you're absolutely right in the knock-on effect is super interesting as well because then you start to have conversations with artists and like if i focus just on on the um male to female diversity you know i had a couple of conversations with female artists saying yeah i've always worked it's so exciting to actually think that i would have a you know a woman on the other side of the screen and just the dynamics slightly different you know and look the reality is artists shop around producers and use multiple producers so it's not about one sex being better than the other but just unfortunately it's a dynamic that doesn't exist often enough so it's something we wanted to give visibility to showcase and just be a little part of that change. And just finally, do you feel sort of nearer to the sort of heart of the music business at this point or, or working for the labels that you have done before, working digitally, doing all the yeah. different things that you've done? Um, it feels when you're at the kind of right at the place where it's made, you, I'd, I'd expect you feel fairly close to the centre. Yeah, I feel ma- yeah, super close to the centre, the closest I've ever been. And also I think, I mean, I... I have loved being in the music industry. I, I don't know. Oh, let's not say how many years I've been in the music industry. But um, I'm getting to that age. Um, but I love the diversity of people that are there. You know, all different kinds of brains, people who are hugely creative, people who are commercial. But I think what being at the kind of the beating heart here and seeing the creative process firsthand is it's just so humbling. Like I, you know, nothing, I still can't get over the fact that an orchestra can come in having never seen a piece of music before and just start up and play the whole thing top to, I I just find that incredible. And then you, you know, you have an artist that comes in who, you know, comes out with three songs having come in with a blank piece of paper. Like like that's so beyond my capability. And I, I think that's so important when you're in this industry to have such respect for that creative process and then everything else kind of is the cog in the wheel but this is the kind of the treasured piece yeah but yeah it's it's such a privilege being so close to it and you know when you see that when you see that stuff being done on a daily weekly mm. basis it makes you you have to pull your socks up yourself yes, you? i mean it, yes. it does doesn't it this you're huge like responsibility. wow look yeah, what they're doing yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 You, yeah. you have to kind of meet them at least somewhere near halfway yeah right? exactly it's, exactly. it's good it's, it's humbling but yeah. it must be very inspirational no it's hugely inspirational you think oh, bloody hell if they're busy doing that all day what am i doing yeah <laughs> <laughs> That was Isabel Garvey, Managing Director of Abbey Road Studios. Thank you to the whole team there for showing us around today. And thanks indeed to all our listeners for sticking around with us over the past 500 episodes of Monocle on Culture. We'll be back next week with our first trip back to a real-life art gallery for quite a while, at least of 2021, maybe for a year or so. And you know the score. This episode was, of course, produced by Holly Fisher, and I've been Robert Bound. Thank you very much for tuning in.